time for another great episode of my dad's podcast, Daddy Unscripted. My daddy is paying me under the table to let you all know what's in store. If you don't want anyone to overhear words like canoe and mother, we strongly suggest you use headphones for this episode. Now that you helped me earn a special treat from my dad, here he is with your treat, another podcast episode. which is welcome in Yiddish. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted Podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the host and the creator of Daddy Unscripted. I'm very excited to have you all here today listening to the podcast. It's been a little while since I've been behind the mic. I've had, I had so many episodes built up, so many guests, and I've just been in editing mode. And it was great to sit down again and get in front of the microphone and sit not only to record a new episode, but to record this specific episode with Dave Goldstein of Beyond the Pond podcast was really, uh, I was very excited going into it and I had no idea what was coming. I really didn't. And we talked, I will say, we talked for over three hours. So uh, there is some editing (laughs) that has taken place here, but it Oh my goodness. I don't know where to begin, but let me do a little bit of business first. I'm here to tell you about a podcast that's coming out really soon via the Osiris Media Network, which is called After Midnight. It is a look back at one of music's most memorable festivals, which is Fish's Big Cypress Festival that took place on New Year's Eve at the turning of the millennium, so in 1999, going into January 1st of 2000. It's also the 20th anniversary, of course, right now, of the festival. They're calling this, and rightfully so, the definitive retrospective of this festival. It's a special podcast just for this festival because the festival was so important, not only because of the timing that it took place, But actually, it lasted seven plus hours as it took place. Seven plus hours of one concert. And not many bands could do that. Fish did. And this is the retelling of that experience. It's a five-episode series. It's hosted and narrated by Jesse Jarno. It's including interviews with Trey, with John Fishman, with Brad Sands. There's a ton of people that are involved in this. There's so many different stories being told that it's broken up into five different episodes. They will start airing on November 14th and kind of continue every Thursday, aside from Thanksgiving, of course. That is a day for giving thanks with your family, not listening about Big Cypress. So it will, in effect, stretch out from November 14th through December 19th. And it's also going to be really cool because there is going to be companion videos for each episode, which are directed and edited by Jefferson Waffle, the former light designer for the band Umphreys McGee. So make sure you also find Osiris's YouTube page to make sure you subscribe and do not miss any of those episodes. They're going to be really cool and special. I don't know if you've seen Waffle's work on video, but it's it's really, really good. So make sure you keep an eye out for the After Midnight podcast wherever you find your podcasts. 
Okay, and I will also remind you that the Osiris Podcast Network is a growing net. We really are growing. So check out OsirisPod.com. And also we are partnered with Jambase. You should go to Jambase.com. Jambase is all about empowering you to go see live music and sometimes there's nothing better than live music in life and we talk about that with dave about some of the great stuff in life aside from just music like family kids uh baseball things like that in this episode okay i'm actually interrupting my own intro that maybe you can tell because i'm just talking into my phone as opposed to using my cool equipment And the reason I'm doing that is because I have to put out this episode and I don't have my equipment with me and I just can't take it anymore. I can't take sitting on this awesome conversation with Dave any longer and delaying it anymore because of all the editing that I've been putting into it. It was a really long conversation and I did edit it, so don't yell at me for total length, okay? There's so much good stuff in this entire conversation that I just couldn't whittle it down anymore, and I didn't want to break out any of this stuff, and it just makes sense the way that it is, but it's pretty big. I'll let some of you That's What She Said fans sit on that for a second, but honestly, I had to just split it up into two different parts for you guys to make it more palpable and to make it not just this gigantic episode that you all are staring at and thinking, ah, maybe I'll wait till the next one. So here it is. This is the first part. And the intro and the outro to this may make it seem like this is the entire thing, but it isn't. This is the first half. The second half should be out either next week or the week after that. It just depends on if I do a Thanksgiving episode like I usually do or not. So most likely, the second part of my conversation with Dave will come out the first week of December, December 2nd through whatever that is. And if you're listening to this later on, none of this means anything to you, so I apologize for that last 20 seconds. But anyways, this part is maybe the appetizer, if we're going to go with the Thanksgiving theme. The next segment of our conversation, do not skip that. Enjoy the feast. Whether you are vegan or maybe you're vegetarian or a carnivore or a Presbyterian, I know that's not a dietary type, but it rhymed with vegetarian, so I'm going with it. You need to listen to the second half of our conversation. So keep your eye out for that one. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to this one because this one is pretty dang good as well. So this one's just not as maybe meaty as the next one. Um, And that's why I'm saying you have to listen to the second part. It's got some heaviness to it that I think is really meaningful and intense. And you'll see. You'll see when you get to it. But don't skip this part. I'm going to break back into my intro to speed you along the way. But I just wanted to let you know because... It may seem a little odd the way it opens and closes, and there are two parts, etc. Thank you for listening. Back to the intro. 
we kind of hit the ground running with the episode. I hit record. We just kind of started talking. So this is a little bit maybe uh, funky in the very beginning, but it really isn't because I'm telling you what's going on. So now you are prepared for the funk. So don't step in it. And here is my conversation with Dave Goldstein. Let me see. I think one of the um, more interesting things about my father is sort of um, his father was born in Brooklyn in 1919. Oh, wow. And his, yeah, his mother being um, my grandmother was uh, born in Vienna, Austria in 1923. Now, if you're uh, a Jewish woman being born in Vienna, Austria in 1923, you look at those dates and uh, if you know history, you can see there could be uh, some darkness on the horizon. Yeah. So fortunately, uh, my grandmother, whose name was Annette, I think she died, and I want to say 2010. In 1938, she and her family, they fled Vienna, Austria through France and uh, came here to the States. Mm. So basically, by the time of, of 1938, I mean, they could see um, with the rise of the Nazis and fascism, Things were absolutely not going to go their way. And um, her father was a jeweler, so they had money. I don't know if it was required. They had to pay for a pass or pay to get past guards or what exactly. But when we were looking through um, her belongings, back when we were settling up their estate a few years ago, we actually located um, a book that had her father's face in it. And it had a stamp from the Nazis and it referred to the fatherland and basically it talked about him and it talked about his children. And it's a piece of um, maybe able even to send you pictures, maybe for like uh, like blog purposes. But it was basically yeah. the pass that they used to get out of Vienna, Austria, over to France. I mean, I'm very wow fortunate not to have any relatives that um, died in the Holocaust. I mean, she was the only one that had to come over. But yeah, they came over in 1938. And if not for that, we wouldn't be having the podcast at this time. <laughs> yeah. So I'll that say, that's crazy. Yeah. It's uh it's unbelievable. Remember, I think my dad found that pass when it was showing it to me two years ago and thinking, wow, do we hold on to this? Are we doing it to like the Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC? Mm-hmm. This is a piece of history. Yeah. So that's crazy. Yeah, my uh, my brother and I, he was actually the first one to do it. He did the 23andMe like maybe three or four years ago. Okay. And we've always been hearing my mom always saying like how German she is, how strong her German roots are through her family and everything. And our dad, we always kind of figured him for kind of a European mutt kind of a deal. Right. And um, had never heard this, but my brother's thing came back that he's over a quarter Jewish and huh. we were blown away. And so then he got one for me and he got one for my mom. And sure enough, my mom is over half Jewish and she didn't know it. And we were like something, somebody somewhere was running. Yes. And so everything got lost. And that is like this, amazing turn of events that we haven't really fully looked into yet, but it's crazy to think about how many people are potentially finding that out now and realizing 
things about their family that they didn't know. Absolutely. So I don't know exactly how she met my grandfather. All I know is that my dad was born in Utica, New York, upstate in 1951. Mm. I know that um, his parents were slightly older than I think other parents at the time. He was an only child, and a lot of pictures of him when he's that age is just him playing with the truck by himself while my grandfather sits in a chair reading a newspaper, and my grandmother (laughs) is like knitting, just like a very 1950s only child type Mm -hmm. thing. And I know my grandmother always had a very ribald sense of humor. She uh, was a big fan of dirty jokes big fan of of Jewish and Yiddish jokes. And my dad had a great sense, still has a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I know just growing up, I always tried to find jokes to tell my grandmother. And if she laughed, I knew that it was a really good joke. To to her credit, she would just tell me filthy jokes. And I was like 10, like 11 years old. She didn't care. She was, I mean, she just came over when she was 15. She didn't have much of a filter. I mean, when you talk about they moved to Florida in 1987 and at the risk of stereotyping someone's old Jewish grandparents, that's kind of what they were. They lived Mm -hmm. in Florida. They had their friends uh, that they liked playing Mahjong and Canasta with. That's on my dad's side. On my mother's side, my mother's father who died two years ago at the age of 95. Mm. I mean, we'll get to him because he has a lot to do with my Mets fandom and introducing my father to the New York Mets. Hmm. But I think growing up with my dad, a lot of it was framed because he was an only child. He had to entertain himself a lot. He had um, these older parents. And one of the first, I guess, memories he told me is that when he was in high school, he was in a band. He played rhythm guitar in a band called the outer cast that played awesome. things like Louie Louie at like parties. Uh, like if you had a house party, I guess this would have been the early sixties. So whatever it yeah. was rocking high schools or frat parties by this point, they had moved to Danbury, Connecticut. So he was in upstate New York for the first 15 years of his life. And then I think at age 15, they relocated to Danbury, which is um, Western Connecticut kind of on, um, the New York border. Yeah, he was in this band playing guitar and then he developed tinnitus and they tried to get rid of the tinnitus by, um, they gave him vitamin B injections and he had to wear earplugs and all this stuff. And hey, it runs in the family because my grandfather listened to his headphones all the time, listened to classical music. He had tinnitus. Really? And then when out was in the eighth grade, I saw a Bon Jovi concert and my ears haven't stopped ringing. So. <laughs> Damn you, Richie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm very used to it at this point. I don't even hear it anymore. It's, it's just, I've lived with it for so long. I just wear earplugs in concerts and don't turn music up too loud. And I'm pretty much okay. So your dad's rocking out. He's in Connecticut. Yep, he's in Connecticut and went to the University of Connecticut. It cost him less to go there because he was in state, hmm. up in stores. This is before the... UConn Huskies became an incredible men's basketball juggernaut. Mm -hmm. So I think at this point, he was attending college. His freshman year was in the mid-1960s. And his record collection very much reflects this. A few years ago, 
when I was going through my mom and dad's records, I saw they had like five copies of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> of the original. That's awesome. Yeah, the original. I said, why do you have five copies? My dad said, well, I think I just took my... I had a copy and I just took my roommate's copy and I think your mom took her roommate's copy. <laughs> but for him going to UConn, um, he wanted to become a dentist. So he was pre-med and he actually went to dental school at UConn as well. He very much still is a dentist, but it was also intuitive because that was where he met my mother. Uh, she grew up in Bayside, Queens in New York and also Roslyn out in Long Island she ended up going to UConn and hmm. that's where they met. I think it was a circle of friends. Cause she was, they always tell a story about he was dating a woman named Cindy, Cindy from Cheshire, which is ironic because Cheshire is where my parents settled. And I grew up for the first 18 years of my life. So he was actually had been dating a girl who was from the place where he would like raise his family. And, um, they broke up, and I think when that happened, my mom pounced. <laughs> Good job, mom. Yeah, she's saying like, "Wow, who's who's this guy? This nice, funny, young pre-dental man. I I went in on this." And the rest, as they say, is history. And actually, um, on August twenty fourth of this year, they're going to celebrate uh, their forty fifth wedding anniversary. Oh wow! Yeah. That would have been in 1974. And then in 1979, my mom was 26. My dad was 28. They had me. I think of, um, I was told the plan was actually to wait until 1980. But I guess I was told that I was a happy accident. So they just decided to speed everything up by a year. And mm-hmm. Have me in 79 instead of 80. Did they ever say, was there a a significant reason they were waiting till 80? No, I think they just had it in their mind. They're like, yeah, yeah. we're going to have you in 1980, but then shit happens and it came out in 79. So, okay. That's the uh, time that you'll actually say um, sex happens. Exactly. Not shit happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I don't know <laughs> what was going on, why they thought they could cheat mother nature or whatever. But <laughs> what's crazy to me is because, my dad had me when he was 28 years old, and I didn't have a daughter. We had our first daughter, Hannah, when I was 35. Mm. So difference of seven years. Like, for example, now, like I always say, okay, so now um, I'm turning 40 in September. So because of that, when he was 40, he had a, I was 12. Mm-hmm. So I just can't even fathom being 40 years old with a 12-year-old. He was 40, and I was going into like junior high school. Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, wow, am I – because I'm fortunate because he's still very much alive and still very active, and he's really a good grandfather to his two grandkids. And my mother, very, very much alive, really good grandmother. So I uh, I feel fortunate that – they're young enough to enjoy their grandkids. Yeah. But getting a bit ahead of myself there. That's all right. They still live in Cheshire, Connecticut in the house that we moved to when I was eight years old. So Mm. for New York city, it's like an hour and 40 minutes away, which I think is perfect because it's just far enough away that it takes a little effort to get there. They can't 
they won't ever do the drop in. <laughs> yeah, the pop ins are great. Yeah, they don't do the drop in, <laughs> but they're still close enough that if you want to see them on the weekend, it's not too difficult. Yeah, and then um, also with my wife, her father just lives a few blocks uptown on 63rd Street. Like we live on like the Lower East Side, and he lives on the Upper East Side mm. with his wife. So, um, but let's see, steering it. Back to me being raised, like I said, grew up in Cheshire, Connecticut, which is uh, home to um, Portland New York Rangers player Brian Leach, very much a oh. part of the team that Rangers team that won the Stanley Cup in 1994. Yeah, home to Dawson James Vanderbeek. I was just gonna say, are you? You've got to be talking about Dawson's Creek, and I'm embarrassed that I knew that right off the bat. Yeah. He was actually, when I was in the eighth grade, there was a town-wide uh, presentation of the Wizard of Oz. I was a munchkin, and he was the scarecrow. He had a lot of words uh. and had to sing a lot. And I thought, this guy's going to go on to being like big, important things. And he became Dawson. Wow. So. Is there a sign, like, in Cheshire that says that, home of James Vanderbeek or anything like that? Um, there was a sign actually for a while that said home of Brian Leach of the Rangers. That's okay. When you, that's good. Yeah. That's when, worthy. When you cross over into town, it says that Brad Asmus went to my high school, which actually is a good segue to, um, some of the earliest memories I have with my dad revolve around what has become my cross to bear, which is, um, extremely intense Mets, New York Mets fandom. Mm-hmm. So, I believe the story behind that, um, I said earlier, my grandfather on my mother's side, my mother's father, his family uh, was from Russia and Poland, and they settled in West Hartford, Connecticut. And because of that, they were uh, all Boston Red Sox fans. You just made my ears perk up. And then my grandfather was raised a Boston Red Sox fan. Mm. And then um, eventually, he went to the University of Connecticut met my grandmother at the University of Connecticut. This was actually um, after he served in WW2. He was mm. in the Battle of the Bulge. He actually wow. captured a German battalion in the Battle of the Bulge. And really? was awarded a Silver Star and promoted to First Lieutenant. Oh, yeah. He's like, he's greatest generation. He was, uh, in some sense, he was a war hero. And then mm-hmm. when that was... Um, yeah, you could definitely have another three podcasts about my grandfather. I definitely will uh, will speak some more about him going forward. So he uh, raised his family in West Hartford, Connecticut. And then eventually they ended up moving to Bayside, Queens, where my mother was born in 1953. And they're like, okay, now that we're living in New York City, because of our Red Sox fan, and there's no way in hell we're going to root for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. But then in 1962, there's an alternative because they, yeah. the New York Mets roll in the town. They're playing at the Polo Grounds. I don't think Shea opened up until 64. So my grandfather became a very big Mets fan. And so when um, my dad started dating my mom, I guess just as a way to connect, they talked a lot of baseball. Mm-hmm. And this was... Lots of baseball was discussed. And then when I was born in 79, this is when the Mets were uh, managed by Joe Torre. They weren't particularly good. And then as I got a bit older, in uh, 1984, the Mets 
course, they get Doc Gooden. Oh, yeah. And then in 1985, Doc Gooden puts up numbers that no Mets pitcher will ever approach ever again, although to his credit, Jacob DeGrom came pretty close last season. Mm-hmm. So in 85, I was um, six years old, and just my dad would be watching all these Mets games. Like he told me whenever Dwight Gooden pitched – he would just like make a point of it to clear his schedule and just sit down on the couch and watch him start to finish because he was just so amazed by what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he would just sit next to him and say, like, look, Dave, this is Doc Gooden. This is the Mets, and this is baseball like it ought to be. And just from an early age, every night, I would go watch the Mets games with him. I'd be in front of the TV. Back in the 80s, they played on – um the station was WWOR Channel 9 out of Secaucus, oh, yeah. out of Secaucus, New Jersey. And I can even kind of still like hum the pregame theme music. <laughs> I remember WWOR even out here. That was that was in the heyday when like out here in SoCal, like we could watch um TBS and WGN. And, um, you know, watch some Cubs games and some Braves games. And I don't know why I remember WWOR, but I do remember it. My dad was actually at game seven of the 86 World Series. Wow. With my grandfather. So I was growing up, I was spoiled. I saw my first Mets game when I was five years old. And because my mother's father... He was a dairy man. At one time, he was the president of Dan and Yogurt. He hmm. uh, founded his own like dairy consulting company. Um, when he got, when I was a bit older, he would often travel to uh, at that time what was the Soviet Union to like tell them how to improve wow. like, their kind of dairy production. And I guess he wow. would meet with their cows. He was in college. He scooped ice cream at the Yukon Dairy Bar, and for whatever reason. He was even kind of credited with one of the people to invent polyestrine cheese. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> no way. So, wow. Because of his dairy connections, he knew a guy who uh, had season tickets seven rows behind the Mets dugout. Oh, gosh. So whenever we went to Mets games, there were like four of those tickets. You would like pick a date and we would go with my family would sit seven rows behind the Mets dugout, which I thought was like totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that's because that's what you were doing. That's what you yeah. Do. You just have these fucking awesome med seats. <laughs> and so, yeah, I watched. I was seven years old. I remember watching all these games in 86. I can even remember certain details of games in 1986. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, there was one Mets game in 86 where they played the Cincinnati Reds. And in the ninth inning, the Mets had two outs. And then there was a pop-up to the outfield. Cincinnati Reds outfield, Dave Parker, mm. ball just glanced off his glove. Could have ended the game there, didn't end it. Game goes into extras. And this is also the game when, for some reason, Met, uh, Reds third base and Eric Davis was jawing with Mets third base and Ray Knight on third base. <sighs> yeah, And it just erupted in a huge brawl. Like Ray Knight had a reputation of being a bit of a brawler and just like socked the guy in the face. And... The game ended. The Mets won 14 innings. Now, of course, because I was only seven years old, I think I probably went to sleep in like the seventh inning. Mm -hmm. And 
this is before the internet, before instant recaps. So often you rely on your dad to tell you what happened with the game. Yeah. I recall the next day was a Saturday. We went and got hot dogs. And I said, Dad, tell me about the Mets game. And he said, son, you're not going to believe how this game ended. <laughs> and we just eat hot dogs and he walked me through everything. And that's that game, you could probably YouTube Ray Knight and Eric Davis like fighting. That was kind of like a game that went into Mets lore. I just looked it up and saw that was like the second link that came up was the fight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's all the name. I mean, just the names that you're saying, but also like Lenny Dykstra was oh, the leadoff hitter. Mm-hmm. Keith Hernandez. I, I have a friend. I, I'll have to find this video. I have this friend who's in TV production and stuff. And one of his first years up in Hollywood he and a couple other guys. And one of them was a huge Mets fan from New York. And they did this little, I don't know. I I've seen it a few times, but it's been a really long time, maybe 15 to 20 minute kind of biography on Keith Hernandez. That is like, Mm. um, equal parts, hilarious and disturbing. That's Keith Hernandez in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And disturbing. And, (laughs) We love having him in the Mets broadcast booth because he's an encyc- baseball encyclopedia and he has very little filter. Yeah. I actually read his autobiography about six months ago where it's just, it's just him talking shit. Oh, really? <laughs> awesome. It's fun. It's not a little bit crude, but. Um, I mean, any of that stuff from the eight, like 80s baseball players. It's so funny. Like you talk about the you know, the steroid era of the nineties, but the Coke era of the eighties. And you absolutely think about <laughs> the Mets involved in that just because you think of, you know, uh, strawberry and Gooden. Yeah. Oh no. The Mets were, I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine like being in my early twenties in New York city in 1986 with that Mets team. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done if I would have done those kinds of drugs back then. I don't know what was going on, but obviously, I mean, they got into in 86, they got into a big bar fight in Houston. I remember seeing that splashed across the papers. Like even at seven years old, I kind of had an idea that some of these were kind of bad dudes. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, as regards game seven of the 86 world series, I remember my dad, he brought me upstairs and he said, David, I have interesting news. I have two tickets to game seven of the world series. One for me, pause, and one for your grandfather. (laughs) I just started bawling my eyes out. Yeah. Wow. And And you came to tell me this why? Exactly. (laughs) Like there's so many better ways to tell me that. Yeah. To this day, I have, I Still, like, remind them, like, what the fuck were you doing? It's like, yeah, I was going to ask not... how many conversations you've had since then about that. Yeah, I will. When I have that type of deflating news to tell to my daughters, I won't do it like you did it. <laughs> so, I mean, baseball has always been something me and my dad can just get on the horn and discuss. Mm-hmm. Like, he'll just 
call me on a Sunday, say like, what do you think of this team? Are, are, are these Mets for real? Can they keep this up? Like, what do you think? What's your opinion of this Marcus Stroman trade? Like, why'd they do that? <laughs> well, this has been a good year for you guys talking then. Oh, yeah. This has been quite the roller coaster. So just circling back um, to my dad, we always had baseball. And just growing up, he um, had, and up until three months ago when he sold it, had his own dental practice. Mm. It was successful. I mean, my sister and I were able to, you know, I guess, grow up pretty upper middle class in Connecticut. Didn't want for very much. And, you know, I try to always, um, when I think to my kids, I would love to give them a similar experience. Yeah. You know, between my wife and I, we do okay. Certainly living in New York City is much more expensive and difficult experience. uh, I should say different experience than growing up in uh, suburban Connecticut, like 17 minutes outside of New Haven. So my dad was always very big into hobbies. Is the one thing Mm. I recall growing up. So I guess one year for a period of time, he was very much into skiing. Because if you grow up in Connecticut and you have to have vacations to go on um, for like Christmas vacation, and February vacation, everyone goes skiing. We, uh, mm. we get together with other families from our synagogue that they were friends with. We often go up to Vermont or New Hampshire. And he just took it very seriously. It was always getting different skis, getting the skis tuned up. We were always going to like uh, ski gear expos at the mall in Hartford, Connecticut. Sometimes he'd even take me out of school. We'd wake up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, drive to Vermont, and go skiing. This also resulted in him doing things like buying a Nordic track because it was kind of like skiing and having some like weird thing hanging in the living room where he could like do exercise, like bounce back and forth like you're skiing. Mm-hmm. Like my friends always said, do your dad get to do his hobbies? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's what he likes to do. And then, then at one point he really got into golf. Like he'd always played golf, but he really got into it. We would go to like golf expos. He'd buy stuff to try to improve his swing. He'd often Mm -hmm. hold the video camera in the backyard while he would like hit golf balls into a net. That's awesome. But to his credit, whenever he had hobbies, I was was the benefactor because I was Mm -hmm. old enough that I would do these things with him. So as a result, I've been playing golf most of my life. But the hobby, as of late in his 60s, that's really taken him over was... um rekindling his relationship with the guitar hmm. now he's uh he's gone back to his roots from um, when he played rhythm guitar in the high school band now he takes lots of guitar lessons he has a guitar teacher he takes guitar lessons online and he has amassed a guitar collection that he says like son hopefully i'm not going anywhere but when it's my time to go you're gonna have a hell of a guitar collection I hope you never get them, Dave, but that's perfect. Yeah, well, exactly. I hope I don't get them for another 30 years. 30 years, I yeah. expect to get them 30, 35 years. I have a friend who is, oh man, he is maybe close to 40 and his dad is older, probably in his 60s, 
um, or so. And they, his dad is an old dead fan and whatnot. And they go to shows together all the time. And I want to weep at the thought of it just because of uh, that. Even if my dad was alive, like he would not be into a lot of the music that I'm into. So um, the idea of sharing something like that is amazing. Yeah, my dad, I've kind of tried to get him into the fish at times. Fish, he says, is too boring for him. There's mm. too much noodling, although he yeah. appreciates Trey Anastasio as being extremely skilled guitarist. Like, mm-hmm. I've sent him like YouTube videos of Trey breaking down his rig. And, you know, my dad's like fascinated by, you know, the equipment that he uses and like the watt pedals that he uses and the amps. So he thought that was really neat. But, Oh, this is funny. I think like maybe like like two years ago, uh, one of my dad's friends was trying to get my dad back into the Allman Brothers. And now that, of course, my hmm. dad is, you know, playing guitar and kind of experimenting with like a slide guitar, his interest has been renewed in the Almonds. And he's saying like, God, Dave, the Allman Brothers, like, you know, they play twin leads and they harmonize with the leads. I'm saying like, <laughs> dad, you're trying to like dad explain the Almonds to me? you think i don't know what the almonds are (laughs) like i'm glad that you're rediscovering them but yeah i've seen the almonds many times they're great right right you know but he's i feel incredibly fortunate that we have a strong relationship as we do and he turned 68 last week today is actually Mm. my mom's 66th birthday Oh wow! Uh, we always say that uh, that the Goldstein children are very poor in the month of August because you got Dad's birthday, Mom's birthday eight days later, and then the wedding anniversary all within like one week of each other. But um, I guess in terms of things that I want to instill to my daughters is that he was always uh, I wouldn't call him a disciplinarian, but he definitely would let you know when you fucked up. Mm-hmm. And he has. One thing I inherited from him at times is a bit of a short temper, but his father, my grandfather, and um, his father, my grandfather was uh, a nice man, um, my grandpa Richard, but he definitely had a reputation for being a bit short-tempered, being a bit of a grouch. And I was able, I mean, I remember all the best conversations I had with my grandfather were about uh, the classical music. He was a big... He was an excellent piano player. He was a big classical music guy. I think he was one of like the first like by a Walkman. He had lots of classical CDs. So whenever I could hmm. focus him on talking about something like Gustav Holtz, The Planets, or um, like Beethoven Concertos, we could have good conversations. But I think it's one thing I'm a little bit sad about was because my grandfather was a bit of a grouch. We didn't really didn't get to know him quite as well as I would have liked. Whereas his wife, my grandmother, who's the one from Vienna, she was very gregarious, incredible cook, incredible jokester, taught me lots of words in Yiddish, very demanding, very old school. But yeah, between um, the two of them, like I said, I would always remember her sense of humor. So I think mm-hmm. based upon the fact that my grandfather had a reputation as a bit of a grouch. I know that my dad kind of tried to, you know, take away, maybe, you know, have more patience, 
be more of a conversationalist, you know, like try to be generally a more sunny, upbeat person than his dad. For example, last week, this is two weeks ago, there was a big family vacation. It was uh, my family, my wife, my two daughters, my mom and dad. So uh, it was grandma and grandpa and my sister and her husband and their two kids who are uh, three and one and a half. So imagine four girls in close quarters in a house in Cape Cod, ranging in age from almost five to three to one and a half to three months. Mm. Sometimes there'd be some sparks flying. And I could tell my dad, to his credit, whenever it looked like he was going to get like angry or say something or kind of like evoke Grandpa Richard, you just like walk away. And that's fine. Because, you know, sometimes uh, if you get up there, if you're 68 years old and there's a four-year-old, a three-year-old girl at each other's throats, it's unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But kind of to his credit, he loves being a grandfather and he uh, has levels of patience that his dad didn't quite just exhibit. I mean, uh, you know, I certainly love my grandfather. If I'm talking a bit of smack about him on this podcast, it's just, you know, from love and the fact that, that was just what his personality was yeah. throughout the years. So I try my best to be patient. I mean, um, my eldest daughter... Hannah will be, uh, she'll be five. She's five going on 27. She's got a opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we did. <laughs> She's a uh, talker. Yeah. She gets some from TV. I'm sure she gets some of it from what I like to think are fairly intelligent parents. But she's just <laughs> a chatty Kathy. And sometimes I forget that I'm talking to a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, like she speaks like she's someone much older, but she still has five-year-old emotions. So when she throws a tantrum, I just have to step back and say, okay, this is going to pass. I'll be patient. Yeah, She has a short memory. She says, daddy made her cry and she wants daddy to go away forever. And I just really mean that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, like you can, I'm sure, you know, you've seen that on several occasions. I haven't gotten my full wrath of karma that is absolutely coming down the train tracks for me at some point. But I said and yelled some pretty horrible things to my parents when I was a kid in, in full rage blackout mode. And, um, I haven't yet gotten the, I wish I was never born the, I wish you weren't my, dad or any of that stuff my daughter is 11 she's going into middle school it's all it's all coming i know it's coming soon yeah like i was never i mean i definitely got spanked a few times as a child Mm -hmm. it was the 80s that was acceptable oh yeah spankings yeah oh my gosh wouldn't do that now we definitely would not uh we would not lay a harsh hand on either of our kids yeah. I remember one thing I never forgot. I think when I was eight years old, um, this is back when I was eight. In the 80s, you could still smoke in restaurants. Yeah. And, both my, and in planes. Yeah, and in planes. And <laughs> yeah. Both of my parents, they were very much non smokers. They did not like cigarette smoke at all. I remember we were leaving a really smoky restaurant one day, and my dad looked at me and said, David, if I ever catch you smoking a cigarette, I will break both your arms. 
Oh man. He said it kind of jokingly. Yeah. But say I said, wow, I'm never going to smoke. <laughs> yeah. Aside from maybe like, I don't know, one or two cigarettes after drinking beers in college. I've always been like a non-smoker. Never, ever, ever wanted to get addicted to nicotine. I, yeah. I thank my parents for that. Thanks, mom and dad. Yeah. Whenever they wanted me to know that I was punished, that they meant business, I was a video game junkie. Before I discovered music, mm. video games was my music. I would probably say from like, say, age seven to age 15. Mm-hmm. I kind of played them at 16, but I remember, I think the last game I got into was like a Legend of Zelda game that was too tough. I just said, fuck it. That was kind of the end of me playing video games <laughs> because I had music. But whenever they meant business, they always they took away the Nintendo. They took away the controllers, just put up in the closet. Oh, God. That was like the ultimate punishment was no Nintendo for like 24 hours. Yeah. That's when I knew, oh, man, I did something really bad. I really messed up. Yeah. It's funny because that those are like the punishments – Cause I've, our kids can have their iPads on the weekends only, and they're starting to get a little less into the educational stuff, but especially during the school year, they do some educational things on them as well. So for anybody who's trying to judge right now, don't do Uh it. Oh, I'm already, I'm already worried that we've allowed too much iPad to my eldest kid. Now that that genie's out of the bottle, just trying to find creative ways to get it in ever so slightly. You know what? So I'll pause my story to say this to that, yeah. which is a, you do what works for you. Right. Like short of like hurting or a neglection or whatever, like you kind of do what works for you and for your kid. And two, like, oh, I started with a, I'm pulling the Chevy chase right now. <laughs> but two, if you, you really can use it in obviously like there's going to be some give and take in there and there's going to be some recreational non-educational usage but my daughter who is autistic who was a lot more autistic or had a lot bigger struggles when she was little mm. the iPad was like a godsend Interesting. and okay. Um, really helped her a lot with communication, learning things. Um, Just really like we tried to use a lot of educational stuff on it and things that were driven in that direction, but it like opened up things that we probably would not have been able to otherwise. So, and, and as a, as a kid myself without iPads and stuff like that, but I learned how to read from, Sesame Street and Electric Company as a kid of the 70s yeah, and me too I skipped kindergarten because I was sitting in preschool reading the bible to my classmates and they were like you have no purpose for kindergarten at all like your levels are way beyond this you don't need a nap and graham crackers so I don't know to me like that's uh, I wouldn't bury yourself especially from what you already said it sounds like you are trying to not have it be too crazy in your usage in your home so right yeah i, I mean 
part of my justification for it was that's how I learned to read was watching Sesame Street and Electric Company. I mean, according to, yeah. to my mom, like I skipped over. I went to kindergarten, but in the Connecticut elementary schools, they had a thing called readiness, which was in between first and kindergarten. I just I skipped over readiness, went right into the first grade. But yeah, mm. I was told I learned how to read from watching those two shows, plus um, generous doses of MTV, which didn't teach me how to read, but it taught me <laughs> all about Duran Duran. Uh, oh, boy, MTV. The first vinyl single I had on my Fisher Price record player was Duran Duran's New Moon on Monday. I remember building pillow forts and listening to Simon LeVon, not realizing how cool I was at the time. That's funny because I'm seven years older than you. So, like, my thing was basically kind of the same exact, but a little bit, you know, I was listening to mainly my sister's record collection, which means I was listening to a lot of Kiss and Queen (laughs) and that kind of stuff on vinyl, like sitting in her room on the floor as a probably five or six year old hearing these you know, hearing Bohemian Rhapsody and listening to it over and over again and wondering what the hell he was talking about, basically. <laughs> yeah, my sister and I, my sister, she's three years younger than me. We were very different growing up. We had um, different groups of friends, certainly. I was heavily involved in uh, like Jewish youth groups in, mm-hmm. in high school, and basically... High school Jewish youth group is Jewish kids getting together and listen to the Grateful Dead and smoking marijuana in the woods. Mm-hmm. On the East Coast, yeah, yeah. exactly. On the East yeah. Coast. That's where I learned all about fish, all about the dead. Unlike a lot of those kids, though, I still listen to all that stuff. And I have a podcast about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas my sister, I mean, all of her friends were from the school that she was with at the time. And just like, you know, did different things. Didn't really get into like Judaism quite as much as I had gotten into. Um, definitely wasn't into music as much. I know um, I certainly took her to see the Dave Matthews Band a few times in the mid-90s. I think um, one time I went in with her, one time I just sat in the parking lot back when I couldn't stand Dave Matthews anymore. But yeah, now that she has um, two daughters of her own, I think we're closer than ever because... Mm-hmm. We've got my daughters and her daughters. They've got first cousins. As we've gotten older, we've certainly gotten closer together. And just just pivoting a bit to um, my fatherhood, I'll say that I uh, met my wife, Jessica, met online in J-Date of all things back in 2004. Whoa. Yeah. This was uh, before the era of Tinder, before your iPhone was a one-stop um, – one-stop shop for all things dating actually had to go on to the computer for online dating. Yeah. That was in 2004. I remember being attracted to her because she named like five bands in her profile who I liked. I liked all those bands. Hmm. She's like, I like the new pornographers. I like Jeff Buckley and I like watching crappy reality TV. And I said, okay. And her picture looks cute. Let's send her something. Mm-hmm. So, our first date was a rock concert at this place called the Mercury Lounge, which is not too far from where we live. And we hit it off. That was in August of 2004. We got married on October 3rd, 
2009. So our 10 year anniversary is coming oh, wow. right up. Yeah. Uh, and who was the concert that you guys saw? A New York band called Sea Ray. Pretty hmm. sure they no longer exist. They were kind of part of like, um, oh, the second wave of New York bands. They were, it wasn't like, I guess what, 2001, the hit band would obviously was The Strokes. All those mm-hmm. bands, the Strokes, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol—they were kind of oh yeah in the second wave with like the Killers. Mm-hmm. They got lumped in with those bands. I think our second date might have also been at the Mercury Lounge because she told me about a band she liked called Palomar, and this band was having their album release party at the Mercury mm-hmm. Lounge. I think we went to that as well. Female fronted power pop band put out a number of good records in um, the mid two thousands and early twenty tens. Hmm. So, but yeah, not to be confused with Shalimar. No, not to be confused with Shalimar. <laughs> I think on our third date, we got beers, and I went back to her apartment and saw her record collection, and I said, "Oh, okay, she means it. I'm into something good here." Mm-hmm. There was lots of bands I liked. Lots and lots of good music. And I'm kind of a belief. Um, John Cusack's character says in the 2000 movie High Fidelity, he mm. says, like, it's uh, not so much what you are like, but what you do like. Books, CDs, movies, these things matter. And I definitely mm-hmm. think that you can tell a lot about someone's personality by, like, you know, how much they're into their, their musical hobbies, breadth and depth of bands they listen to, and how seriously they take it. So yeah, we got, I guess we dated for five years before we got married and we had our first child, Hannah, in October, 2014. Um, we found out, I mean, I don't, don't want this to come off as a brag. I know a lot of people have a very difficult time getting pregnant. There's a lot of issues with infertility. That wasn't an issue with us. It was pretty, mm-hmm. it happened pretty quickly. I think like towards the end of January, we knew that we were going to have a kid in October. And so I Mm. spent most of 2014, you know, kind of feeling very excited and also kind of feeling a bit like death row, but happy death row. Mm -hmm. The end of an, of a era for sure. Yeah. Here's a kind of funny story because I know that you're um, a really big Umphreys McGee guy. I had tried Umphreys for a very long time and for whatever reason, they didn't click with me until February of 2014. Uh, there was um, this one guy who's on Twitter. He's a big Humphreys fan named Mark Lesh. Oh, yeah. Lesh knows best. Is that his? Yeah, Lesh, exactly. Super nice guy. Also a dad himself. Might be fun to get on the podcast, actually. And um, he, would, he would send me select Humphreys shows. And for whatever reason, I think that band made a big leap in the year of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, for some reason, that part of the year, I was making a lot of, um, I'm an attorney, I was making a lot of court appearances in the courthouse, which was happened to be like an hour and 10 minutes away from my house. So we had a car and I was just driving, listening to lots of Humphrey shows in the car. And at one point, they played a show, they did a three-night run at the Riviera Theater in Chicago in February of 2014. And then they have, I think you're actually, um, you're familiar with the song because they used it um, for bumper music at times. 
they have a song called Much Obliged. Oh, yeah. And they played a version of it. I think it was February uh, 21st, 2014. The version is 15-minute version of that song, which features this incredible jam in E major. remember driving on the highway hearing this song for the first time this incredibly awesome bright jam thinking to myself wow this is incredibly bright music and holy fucking shit i'm gonna become a father in october mm-hmm. this is like i almost felt like i had like a rush of adrenaline i started to laugh out loud to myself in my car thinking like my god this is gonna be a hell of an adventure and this is like some incredible jamming and E major going. Actually, two twenty. I think it was two twenty two twenty fourteen. That's like really nerdy of me to say that, but you know, being a big music guy, it's important that I have to get that date right. It's okay. I think you're. I think you're right. Okay. I remember the next show. I think was one of had a Haji Glory Haji sandwich, which is to me like pure bliss moments. So I. I think you might be right about that day. Okay. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was opening night. It was on two twenty fourteen. I think was when they played Big Much of Blythe. And right, they did the Haji Glory Haji, like the E major, like big sandwich thing. The next night, third night of that run was when they did Chair of Rock with Jimmy Chamberlain for the encore, being like the big, mm, yeah, big Chicago. Oh yeah, fucking, that was that run. Yeah, big Chicago tribute. That was fucking awesome. It's. Actually, Umphreys McGee plays Cherub Rock better than like the Smashing Pumpkins live play Cherub Rock. <laughs> I won't disagree with that. Just getting it right. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of I saw some good fish shows in 2014. We took a nice baby moon to um, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Hilton Head. We kind of had an idea that we were going to try to have a kid in 2013. So we made a point to do a huge trip to we didn't really have a honeymoon. So made a point to do a huge trip to Belgium and France in 2013. So mm. went to Paris, went to Brussels, Belgium in 2014. That was the baby moon. And then we had Hannah in October of 2014. And um, she was stubborn, did not want to come out. So my wife was induced. And this was um, her birth was what you would call incredibly stressful because mm-hmm. after her Pushing for two and a half hours, the doctors huddled in the corner and realized it wasn't happening because Hannah was sunny side up. And, mm. uh, she just wasn't facing the right way out of like the 
like birth canal. I think she was facing the right way, but her head wasn't like she was looking up and she wasn't going to come out. So they had to do an emergency, mm-hmm. emergency C-section. So she was born at 1240 in the morning via emergency C. And, you know, it was perfectly, everything went perfectly fine after that. Hannah made quite an entrance. Very happy, very healthy child just delivered via an emergency C-section, which um, I wouldn't wish that on any dad having to see your wife go through that. I mean, she was in so much anesthesia. She kept saying she felt cold and she kept making these weird noises like, oh, gosh. You know, all the doctors kept assuring me, like, no, she's fine. That's just anesthesia. Don't worry about it. And kid's very alert. (laughs) And the first thing I noticed when the doctor's like, you know, they picked her up. It's her alertness. She had these big blue eyes. Mm. These big blue eyes like staring at me. And then the second I held her, I just started bawling. Just started mm-hmm. weeping. Very cliche, holding a baby daughter for the first time. I just was a mound of crying and emotion. If I could offer any advice to first-time dads... It's that you will probably remember next to nothing about the first three months of your child's life. Mm-hmm. It's because it's a roller coaster. You'll be exhausted. Not necessarily going to be fun. You'll be sleep deprived and you'll say, wow, my life has changed. What did I get myself into? But you're learning. <laughs> it's a learning curve. Just hang on and enjoy it because eventually they get super fun. Yeah, it's it's weird because like, you know, I I agree with all of that. And I and I tell a lot of my friends that are first time dads or whatever, just don't expect the kind of like what you say about them getting fun and stuff after a few months. I felt like the bond is a little bit difficult during that first part until you start seeing some of those changes as well as like just the connection that I didn't want to impede on or anything like that, like have at it. But the connection between mom and child is like so immense and so important and so meaningful during that time yep. that it's like, you're kind of, you're kind of getting the scraps and that's okay. Yeah. Oh, that's incredibly true. Basically, I don't have breasts, so I felt inadequate because when my daughter be flipping out, it's like, I can't give her what she needs. Right, yeah. And no, there's absolutely times when she'd just be crying, and I'm like, you know, I can cuddle her and rock her all that she wants, but I know she's just hungry as fuck. And mm-hmm. my wife is out and, you know, just, just unavailable. I just have to hang with it because that's – You know, that's like you said, the bond between the mother and child is strong. But yeah, I mean, Hannah, by the time she turned three months and the pediatrician says when she starts to get more fun, that's when they start to beat the heck out of um, like put them on the floor gym. They look up, they'll hit, you know, their mobile, lots and Mm -hmm. lots of cooing, lots of smiles. That's, you know, that's when I remember things really started to pick up. You know, we always tried to play a lot of music for um, our first daughter, I think. Mm-hmm. Her first concert was a Rafi concert. Awesome. Really got into Rafi. Classic. Yeah. It was 
Rafi was great. The show was one hour on the nose. But I definitely played a lot of fish, a lot of dead for her. And she knew, figured out from an early age that Daddy was a fan of the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. One of my proudest early moments, I think she was probably about two and a half years old. We were on the subway. And then she just like says out loud, Daddy, I want you to see me Scarlet Begonias by the Grateful Dead. And she said that four people on the subway, their faces lit up instantly. Like I was by four dead heads. Uh, I just is like, okay, I'll sing you part of that song. <laughs> it's like people across, four people, instant smiles. Like, uh, awesome. There's fellow heads on this subway. So and I've tried to, you know, take away from my own dad in raising Hannah is that, you know, be passionate about your hobbies Try to be present. Try to. Um, one thing my dad didn't have when I was being raised is there were no iPhones, there were no iPads. So I try hard to stay off Twitter and try to stay out of my phone when she's around. Sometimes it's hard to do. It's really tempting just to like bury yourself in the phone. But I try to, yeah. you know, try to do my best to be a, you know, like a present dad. But no, certainly uh, my dad did very well and still me that the golden rule is I tell her and I don't use the same language. I say, Hannah, look, one rule life, just don't be an asshole. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the golden rule. Leave the world better than you found it. You know, do unto others as you'd like to do to them and just, just don't be a jerk. That's all it is. Yeah. My dad would always say, you know, just don't be a dork. Just, you know, don't, don't be a dick. Just think something before yeah. I do something. Is this something that an asshole would do? And sometimes I'm guilty of doing some seriously assholeish things. <laughs> I just try to take a step back and think, okay, whatever the U.S. president would do, what's the opposite of that? That's what I want to do. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, we have a pretty solid example of how not to conduct ourselves. I know. That's my opinion. That's your opinion? Well, that's the correct opinion. <laughs> that's, it's, not, it's not an opinion. It's just fact. Uh, uh, if people feel differently, well, those people can get fucked. <laughs> yeah, my seven-year-old, uh, gosh, it must have been, it may have been like two years ago, he got fascinated with the presidents. And uh, because of an iPad app, I might add. Right. And now, you know, he knows all the presidents in order okay. at younger than six. You could ask him or he could tell you what the 19th president was or whatever. He just like engulfed his brain with presidential history. And then he went through this thing and he wanted to hear them. And then he wanted to like see videos of them. And it was kind of cool. And, and it was funny, like his reaction to, sorry, buddy, I don't have videos I can show you of George Washington. I, I, you're never going to be able to hear him speak or see him talk or whatever. And seeing all this stuff. And as I'm going through the presidents and showing him different videos of them speaking at different kinds of things and getting, getting to Trump, like the drop off was just 
number one, the drop off was insane. Number two, like I didn't really want to show him a lot. Of, like I had to be very selective in what I'm showing right. him of Trump, right, right, you right, know, right, right. <laughs> just the ridiculous thought of that, of me having to censor my child from our president is just hilarious to me. It's unbelievable because one thing you always want to be when you grow up is the president. And yeah. you would always hope that the president would be someone who a kid could look up to and say, you know, if you try really hard in school and you study and you eat your vegetables and mind your P's and Q's, then one day you too could be the president. And this is what, you know, children have to look up to. It's it it just blows my mind every day that like whenever he comes on TV, I have to mute it because I can't even hear his voice. Like so Yeah. Every once in a while I'll put on something and my wife will be next to me in bed and she will tell me to turn it off. She's like, I can't even hear him. I can't listen. Yeah. We always have to mute whenever he's on. We can't even bear to look at him. It's uh it's pretty bad. I mean, and even when we decided to have a second child, I mean, part of it was I thought in the back of my mind was like, wow, do I really want to bring like another child into the era of Trump? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is that? That's mm-hmm. real. That's a real thought. Yeah, though. exactly. It's a very real thought. It's like, um, like, you know, is this, is it going to get better? Is he going to lose? Is it going to go away? Like that's, you know, it's a pretty... It would seem, at least as the television would portray it, that the country is divided along party lines. And is this Mm -hmm. some kind of turmoil that we want to raise a kid in? Like, I'm already dreading the heck out of 2020 because I just think it's going to be like parental stress is bad enough. And it's and it's not just Trump. I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, I'm hearing in the back. And I guess part of it for me is because I do know people you know in in my family in different areas and friends of mine who are who did vote for Trump and so i hear them in the back of my head and for them if they are listening a aside from that i love you all right. <laughs> um but b like it's not just trump it is it is what is happening to the world and the you know, the Endangered Species Act, the, um, you know, the complete disregard for what is going on with global, like thinking that global warming is a is a myth. And as well as really like what what all has bubbled up from all of this and kind of like what you were just saying about your dad instilling in you and you instilling in your daughter of the opposite that people are doing where they are not only not telling their kids, don't be an asshole um, and don't be a dick, but they are giving them perfect examples of the bad behavior for them to watch in front of their eyes because they are whatever driven by their hate or ugliness, whatever it is. Exactly. But well, so we didn't heed the warnings and we decided to go ahead and have a second child. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Much to our own chagrin. Yeah. It's crazy because after like four years, <laughs> I felt like I was finally getting, getting the hang of parenting. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I've kind of like, okay, four years, I've been there, I've done that, I kind of can predict my daughter to a certain extent. I know she has certain likes and dislikes. I know that she is like obsessed with Moana and some Disney princesses, but she also likes Raffi. She likes some of the music I like. She loves eating quesadillas. That's her favorite thing to have for dinner, quesadillas and mac and cheese and eggs, just like any like regular four-year-old. So we figure, all right, let's throw like a monkey wrench into that and um, we can have the kids be like four years apart. All right, and that is the end of my conversation with Dave Goldstein. You should check out Beyond the Pond podcast. Find them on OsirisPod.com as well. And you can find Daddy Unscripted in every single place that you can think of. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Not every place. But we are on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can send me emails at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of this episode with Dave. Let me know, you know, the positive, the negatives, whatever feelings you have that come out of it. So you can send me an email if you want to do that. You can hit me up on uh, direct message on all of those social media platforms. And again, thank you to Umphreys McGee for allowing me to have their music. We added that little snippet in here from that 2014 show that we were talking about. And I just couldn't help myself. So we added that little bit of music on here. So thank you to Umphreys McGee for the partnership with this podcast, allowing us to have your music on here. Check out umfreeze.com for more information on them and tour dates. And so you can see some of this music that we're talking about, etc. And again, jambase.com, go see live music, I think. And this is just my opinion, so you don't have to agree with me, but I think there is something very good and important and real about being at a concert, being surrounded by other people who love the music that you are listening to. It's just kind of a cool experience, right? Just like a sports game. Go to a sports game also. Uh, we are not supported by MLB.com, but if they want to support this podcast, bring it on, guys. Um, all right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And like I did in the beginning, for a good reason, if you listen to this episode, introduced you in Yiddish, I will now say goodbye and farewell to you in Yiddish by saying, which is, have a nice day in Yiddish. Have a nice day, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode and keep your eyes open. The next episode should be out in two or three weeks, so get ready for that. Mm-hmm.